This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. My name is Katie Whiskar, and I'm your host today, and I'm thrilled to be joined by a very familiar voice here at The Rounds Table, none other than Paxton Bach, who is a colleague of mine at UBC, currently down in California, uh, working down there. But Paxton, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. Happy to be on the show, as always. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've listened to you on the show for years and, you know, we've each recorded episodes, but we have yet to record together. So I'm pretty excited for this. As am I. Dream team. <laughs> All right. Well, as usual, let's dive right into it. So why don't you tell me about the article that you have chosen for this week? So I am super excited about the article that I chose this week. I chose an article out of the New England Journal that was just just published entitled Oral versus Intravenous Antibiotics for Bone and Joint Infection. Mm, it's a good one. This was done by Liet All, based out of the United Kingdom. It was a multi-center trial there. Mm, and this had the catchy name Oviva, I believe, right? Yes. I don't think you can publish in the New England Journal without a catchy trial name these days. So, Yes, the Oviva trial. All right. And what was the bottom line of this article? So this article, as suggested in the title, was looking at oral versus intravenous antibiotics for the treatment of bone and joint infections. And the bottom line is that in this large, multi-center, open-label, randomized control trial, the use of PO antibiotics was found to be non-inferior to IV antibiotics for the treatment of patients with a wide variety of bone and joint infections. Hmm. That's fascinating and certainly flies in the face of sort of the standard of care that I've been taught and I assume you've been taught. So tell me a bit more about why you chose this paper. Yeah, I think just like you said, this is counter to what we generally see. And I work at an inner city hospital and treat a lot of complicated infections, both infectious endocarditis as well as osteomyelitis. They make a big part of my day. And as you know, the amount of resources involved in trying to arrange six weeks of IV antibiotics for somebody is very significant. Oh, it's impossible sometimes. Yeah. That either means keeping them in a hospital for a full six weeks or having to arrange home IV, CAD pumps, all of those kind of things, pick lines. And that's a very resource intensive treatment plan. And I think even beyond that, it's a huge burden on our patients. I mean, you know, being in a hospital for six weeks is very disruptive and very boring. And having to manage this at home can be very anxiety provoking and puts them at risk for complications with their lines and their pumps and a variety of other things. Absolutely. Last fall, you may remember a paper was featured on the rounds table where they talked about the potential for using partial PO therapy for left-sided infective endocarditis. I do. I read it with great interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was one of our episodes last fall and seemed to suggest that's a reasonable treatment strategy. And now we're looking at a paper who's asking a very similar question, but with bone and joint infections. All right. Well, I'm fascinated to see what this study came up with. So tell me a bit about the method. So where did the study take place and what was its design? So as I mentioned, this trial was based out of the UK. It was a multi-center trial that occurred at 26 different centers between 2010 and 2015. It was an open-labeled, parallel group, randomized, controlled, non-inferiority trial. So I think we're starting to see more and more of these non-inferiority trials these days, at least on our show. Yeah, and I mean, the sort of non-inferiority aspect is interesting. I think as we'll probably get into for this trial, it was pretty reasonable as a design to pick non-inferiority, but I'm sure we'll talk more about that. So who did they enroll in the study? Yeah, I think it was a reasonable approach for this specific question. So in this study, the enrollment criteria were quite broad. They had to be adults who were eligible for six weeks of IV antibiotic therapy for either 
native osteomyelitis of the extra axial skeleton, for a native joint infection requiring uh, excision arthroplasty, for a prosthetic joint infection, for a fixation device infection, or for vertebral osteomyelitis. So as I mentioned, a wide variety of bone and joint infections, both with and without prosthesis. Yeah, that's a sort of huge range of patients and very broad inclusion criteria, as you said. All right, so what was the primary question of this study then? Yeah, so they took this fairly large, fairly heterogeneous, but almost pragmatic kind of pool of patients, and they compared in that group, as mentioned in the title, um, IV to PO antibiotics. So essentially what they did was within seven days of initiating treatment, or within seven days of, of any kind of definitive surgical intervention, they randomized their patients to either getting their standard IV antibiotic therapy for, for a minimum of six weeks or to a PO regimen. The PO regimen was selected by an infectious disease physician, and they were not constrained to any particular medications, but were able to take into account things like local microbial epidemiology, any microbiome that they might have from the infection, susceptibility, bioavailability of the agents, drug-drug interactions, etc. So they were allowed to kind of use their own discretion in choosing a PO regimen. I thought that was pretty smart of the investigators to do this in a very sort of practical manner, because obviously having the right antibiotic is going to be probably the most important thing, regardless of route. And so I thought that this was a good move on their part. Yeah, and I think for kind of a very dogma-shaking study, I think that they've really cast a broad net here. And as we'll talk about later, there really is kind of opportunities for a lot of follow-up from this study, I think. Mm, For sure. Okay. And then what did they do in terms of follow-up for these patients? Uh, So the trial, as I mentioned, enrolled patients within seven days of the treatment or the surgery. And once they were enrolled on a particular arm, their adherence to treatment was assessed at two weeks into treatment as well as at six weeks into treatment, which is sort of the minimum duration that was going to be recommended in most of these patients, although the treating physician had the leeway to extend their treatment if he felt it was necessary. Patients were then followed up at six weeks. They were followed up at four months and they were followed up at one year for um, clinical assessment. Got it. All right. And at these follow-up points, what was the primary outcome that they were looking at? So the primary outcome that they chose was a very straightforward one. Uh, It was definite treatment there within one year after randomization. And this was defined by a number of different ways. So there could be clinical failure, which was, for instance, you know, a draining sinus tract or something from their infection site. There could be microbiologic failure, so recurrence of the microbe that they... um, had initially cultured, or it could be done by histologic criterion. So if there was evidence of inflammatory cells or of microorganisms on biopsy. All of these endpoints were assessed by a committee of three specialists, all of which assessed the vials independently and determined whether every patient at the end of one year was either uninfected, had what was called a possible treatment failure, had a probable treatment failure, or had a definite treatment failure according to these criteria. Got it. Okay. And any important secondary outcomes or anything else you wanted to mention about the methods here? Yeah, they looked at a variety of secondary outcomes. So as I mentioned, the primary outcome was definite treatment failure. And in their secondary outcomes, they also looked at those probable or impossible treatment failure categories. They looked at things like early discontinuation antibiotics. They looked at catheter complications. They looked at C. diff infections, serious adverse events, resource use, adherence to treatment. So a number of secondary outcomes as well as sort of your safety outcomes, I guess you'd call them, or adverse events. All right. And just before we get into the results then, explain to me a bit how they calculated non-inferiority or how they defined it in this study. 
Yeah, so again, we're seeing more and more, I think, of these non-inferiority trials. Uh, essentially, the principle behind these is that you don't have to prove superiority of one treatment versus another, but you can just demonstrate that clinically it's non-inferior and that if it has other associated benefits, like, for instance, this one, presumably cost, if you can show that it's non-inferior, it may end up kind of becoming a treatment of choice based on other considerations. So the key with these non-inferiority trials is they set what's called a non-inferiority margin. So a priori, at the beginning of the trial, they'll set a margin of error between their standard of care group and their treatment group that will define what they call non-inferiority. So in this case, the expected anticipated rate of treatment failure in all comers, based on their single-centered pilot study, was about 5%. That's kind of what they expected to see. So they sat down with a group of ID docs, a group of researchers, and a group of orthopedic surgeons, and decided that a margin of error of 5% between the IV group and the PO group, or less than 5%, I should say, would be a reasonable non-inferiority margin. So this is sort of made up a little bit, but I think 5% is a reasonable number. However, I should point out that in this particular trial, they did a planned interim analysis partway through, and their overall treatment failure rate in their interim analysis was actually 12.5%, so much higher than their anticipated rate of failure. Because of that, they felt that their margin of 5% may be too restrictive, and they actually, on discussion with their with their trialists, decided to extend that to 7.5%. So a little bit of an asterisk to the trial there, because you know we hate to see these changes made partway through the trial, but one that they were forced to make based on unexpectedly high rate of failures. Yeah, and I sort of, I read that part of the paper with great interest. I think at first glance, that 7.5% number, as well as having a bit of an asterisk by it, as you said, seemed quite high to me. But I think, as I'm sure you'll talk about, this is a trial where one study arm had sort of significant benefits over the other in terms of cost and feasibility and sort of patient satisfaction and all those kinds of things in terms of oral versus the burdens of IV therapy. So I think it makes sense in this case. In other trials that we see that do non-inferiority for sort of two very similar medications, I'm, I think we're used to seeing much smaller margins, but I think this figure is probably pretty reasonable. Yeah, and it, all, it has to do with, you know, the expected failure rates and that sort of thing as well. So I think that they're sort of, their hands were tied and they had to make that change. Yeah, fair enough. So now that we've set up the study, tell me, what did they actually find? So the findings of a study where they enrolled just over a thousand patients across their 26 sites between 2010 and 2015, and they were actually able to obtain endpoint data for 96% of these patients, so pretty good follow-up. The average patient that was enrolled in the trial, about 60 years old, two-thirds of them were male, and the vast majority, so over 90% of them, ended up receiving some type of surgical procedure at the beginning of treatment. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And how about the groups? Did they stay fairly separate or was there some crossover between the groups? So the group themselves, as far as receiving treatment, 90% of the patients ended up restarting their assigned treatment within the seven-day window. And the vast majority of it ended up staying on their assigned treatment. Approximately 10% of the PEO group ended up receiving IV antibiotics at some time, although it wasn't clear whether they were completely converted to IV antibiotics or whether they ended up just getting a few doses or whether they were perhaps receiving those IV antibiotics for a completely unrelated infection to their, to their joint infection. I will point out that while patients were enrolled to a minimum of six weeks of antibiotics, the average duration of therapy was a little over 70 days or 10 weeks, and that was similar between both groups. So there was the discretion of the treating physician as to how long to treat for, and they seemed to go a little bit longer in, on, in both cases. 
Hmm. Again, in sort of keeping with that pragmatic design that seems to be a theme here. Okay. And now in reading through the results, it seems that they did several sort of analyses. So tell me about sort of the most important one in terms of their primary outcome. Yeah, I think they did a really good job at outlining the analyses that they chose and kind of the rationale. The most important one, I suppose we would say, was their intention to treat analysis. And in that analysis, for those five, 4% of patients where there was missing data, they actually used imputed data to help fill in those endpoints. So in that analysis, which they reported as the primary outcome, they found treatment failure in 14.6% of the IV group and 13.2% of the PO group. So statistically, that's non-inferior not only to that 7.5% margin, but even if you were to adhere to the initial 5% non-inferiority margin. Hmm. Okay, so pretty convincing. Yeah, and as I mentioned, there was a variety of other analyses. So they did do, for instance, a modified intention to treat analysis, including only those who they actually had endpoint data, as well as a per-protocol analysis. The one that I'd like to highlight here was actually one of their sensitivity analyses, where they actually replaced all missing endpoint data with success in the IV group and with failure in the PO group. So they called this their worst case scenario analysis. And even in this analysis, the PO antibiotics were non-inferior to the IV group if you use the 7.5% non-inferiority margin. So even in the worst case scenario for all for the 4% of the patients that are missing, it still ended up being a significant result according to their revised non-inferiority margin. Yeah, that's pretty compelling and easy to understand for, you know, someone who doesn't have a great grasp of complex statistics like myself. That seems to be pretty clear. So, okay. And then how about any subgroups that they looked at? Was there anything remarkable there? Yeah, as usual, they did a whole variety of pre-specified and post-hoc subgroup analyses. Not a lot of real interest there. There was no difference when they looked at the type of infecting pathogen, the surgical procedure, the selected antibiotic, etc. Although I will point out that the numbers in each of these subgroups were quite low. So take that for what it is. All right. So seem to be a pretty compelling result here. Are there any particular observations that you wanted to make or things you wanted to point out, Paxton? Yeah, uh, just a couple other things to highlight is that, not surprisingly, early discontinuation of the randomly assigned treatment was more common in the IV arm than in the PO arm, so that kind of stands to reason, considering that it is more logistically challenging. Also, not surprisingly, there was more catheter complications in the IV group, and the mean hospital stay was also longer in the IV therapy group, although it was actually only 14 versus 11 days, so they did a very good job of getting these people out the door quite quickly to continue on with their IV therapy as an outpatient. All right, so Paxton, wrap it up for me. What is the main learning point for this article? So the main learning point here, I'll just reiterate, is that in a fairly pragmatic open-label RCT, the treatment of a variety of bone and joint infections with PO antibiotics seem to be non-inferior to IV antibiotics as defined by treatment failure at one year. So really questioning kind of the accepted recommendations for this kind of treatment. Yeah, totally. Very game-changing. So speaking of, do you think this will change your practice in this area? Because this is something, as we've said, that we see quite often. Yeah, this is something I see literally on a daily basis. So will it change my practice? I'm going to hedge a little bit and say, in practice, this is not the kind of decision that I make by myself. It's always made in consultation with ID colleagues and looking at a patient and kind of, you know, their living situation and that type of thing. And really, that's unlikely to change for now. And I really suspect, you know, I can't speak for my ID colleagues, but I suspect that they'll be hesitant to completely change their recommendations based on this trial. And we'll probably await a little bit more data. A few really important questions that sort of remain, as you pointed out, was a very large proportion in this trial ended up with some kind of surgical 
interventions, so surgical versus non-surgical interventions still remains a question. The type of surgical intervention remains a question. Pathogen-specific data, more data on resistant organisms, so a lot of uh, more specific questions to apply here. But generally speaking, I think this is a very major paper in terms of questioning kind of accepted dogma, I expect we will see a lot more studies following this, asking this question. And really, I'm not surprised by it because we spend all this time in hospitals switching people from IV antibiotics over to PO antibiotics as quickly as possible, saying that, you know, antibiotics and antibiotic, and if the bioavailability is good and the sensitivities are good, there's no reason to be on IV therapy. And then we sort of make the opposite argument when it comes to treating these kind of infections. So, you know, if the antibiotic is widely bioavailable and getting where it needs to get, I, I'm inclined to believe this. And I think that really it is going to, down the road, change the way that we treat these infections once we kind of get a little bit more granular data on who this applies to. I I totally agree. And as you've said, I think this really questions the dogma. And it really is dogma because we've been trained teaching that like there's some special thing all of a sudden about bone and joint infections that need prolonged IV antibiotics. And I love that this study challenges it. And I, as you said, I'm excited to see future research that comes out of this. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for bringing up that paper. We are going to completely change gears now for the article that I have picked for this week. So the article that I'm talking about today is called Lung Ultrasound Integrated with Clinical Assessment for the Diagnosis of Acute Decompensated Heart Failure in the Emergency Department, a Randomized Control Trial. And this was by Pivetta et al., published in the European Journal of Heart Failure in February of 2019, so also hot off the press. So you're right, going in a very different direction here, but also, you know, I'll point out acute heart failure every single day we see that on the word. So really another really bread and butter uh, internal medicine presentation. So, Katie, tell us then what's the absolute bottom line to this trial. So in this randomized parallel group trial of over 500 patients presenting to the emergency room with acute dyspnea, the addition of lung ultrasound was superior to the addition of chest x-ray and BNP to clinical assessment for diagnostic accuracy of patients with acute decompensated heart failure. Now, you have a bit of a vested interest in this area, I think. So tell us a little bit more about why you chose this article. I have a very vested interest in this area, and I have been just waiting on the rounds table for a great ultrasound paper to come out so that I could share my love of ultrasound with the world. So as you know, I'm doing a year of fellowship right now in POCUS or point of care ultrasound. So this is very close to my heart, but I do think even with my biased perspective that this is a really important article and something that should be shared and is really applicable to everyone within internal medicine. So although I, there are a ton of really useful applications of ultrasound that I am very keen on, I really think that lung ultrasound is one of the easiest and highest yield. It's a pretty short learning curve, can give you a ton of valuable information, and we're accumulating some pretty good evidence that it's superior to a lot of our existing tests, things like chest x-rays, for diagnosis of pathology in patients with dyspnea. And now, as you've said, heart failure is this incredibly common problem. We see it all the time. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I have these memories burned into my brain of being on call, especially as a junior resident. And from about November till April, everybody was admitted with dyspnea and respiratory failure and everybody got Lasix, steroids, antibiotics, because it can sometimes be really hard to tell COPD versus CHF versus pneumonia. 
And we know that chest x-ray certainly is far from perfect for helping us with that diagnosis. So this paper sort of builds on some existing literature supporting lung ultrasound for heart failure. And I'll talk about a few reasons why I like it, but it's one of the first to directly compare ultrasound to chest x-ray and BNP, a blood test. So I'm really excited about it. Awesome. So I'm just going to press pause on the paper for a second, just for our listeners who are not maybe as familiar with the use of ultrasound in the diagnosis of heart failure. Can you give us like a 30 second snapshot of exactly what you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. I would love to. So we can use ultrasound to investigate patients with dyspnea and heart failure is one thing that's easy to pick up. So when we're doing ultrasound of the lungs, you're looking for artifacts because the lungs themselves are full of air and sort of scatter ultrasound beams. But we look for certain artifacts, most commonly things that we call beelines. So those are vertical artifacts that descend from the pleura seen in multiple lung zones. And I'll talk a bit more about sort of the nuances of diagnosing heart failure on ultrasound, but that was primarily what they were looking for in this trial. So the presence of those vertical beelines as compared to an A-line pattern, which you would see in aerated lung or things like consolidations that you might see in pneumonia. So you're literally just running the ultrasound probe across the lung fields and kind of looking for this sort of characteristic pattern for pulmonary edema. Perfect. And yeah, and there's a few different protocols for sort of exactly how you do that. This one uses a four scanning points per hemithorax, which is pretty common and is what I tend to do in my practice. But yeah, you're sticking the probe on the chest, sticking some gel on there and seeing if you can see this pattern that we know correlates with pulmonary edema. Awesome. Okay. All right. Look back to the paper then now that we've kind of clarified that. So uh, tell me then, what was the specific design of this study and, and where did it take place? Yeah. So this was a randomized multi-center parallel group study done at two academic hospitals in Italy. The group there is very sort of forward in their lung ultrasound and they've published before sort of around this topic. So it's no surprise to see a great paper come out of this group. Okay. Awesome. And who did they enroll? Who were they looking at? So they were looking for adults presenting to the emergency room with acute dyspnea, which they defined as less than 48 hours in duration or a worsening of their chronic dyspnea. So it was pretty broad inclusion criteria. The only sort of excluded patients who had dyspnea in the setting of trauma or were on positive pressure ventilation, so either intubated or on sort of BiPAP or CPAP, non-invasive ventilation. And they also had to be patients who arrived at the eMERGE when there was an emergency physician who was trained in lung ultrasound. The Italian Society for Emergency Medicine has training standards, so accredited physicians, I guess, who had met those standards were the ones doing the scanning. Okay, so that sounds like a pretty reasonable enrollment criteria, pretty wide ranging. And specifically then, what were they studying? Because this is kind of a little bit of a complicated pathway for patients here. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think what they chose was pretty reasonable. So basically, they were assessing two different diagnostic pathways. So everyone underwent the same initial clinical assessment. And by that, I mean a history, a physical exam, an ECG, and an arterial blood gas, which is surprising to me because I don't get ABGs in most of my patients, but that's an aside. And after that initial assessment, the treating physician had to record their preliminary diagnosis. And the investigators deliberately made this dichotomous. So the physician had to categorize these patients as heart failure or not heart failure. And they talk a bit in the discussion about how they recognize that patients can have sort of multiple diagnoses and multifactorial etiologies, but for the purposes of this study, they really wanted to make that dichotomous. So that initial diagnosis was recorded 
Following that, there was computer randomization of the patients to one of two arms, either the lung ultrasound arm or the chest x-ray BNP arm in a one-to-one fashion. Then the same emergency room physician who had done the initial assessment would proceed with either of those two sort of tests. So would either perform the lung ultrasound or would order the chest x-ray and the BNP. And after getting that additional piece of information, they then recorded their sort of revised diagnosis, incorporating that new information. I should mention after that sort of second diagnosis was recorded, the treating physician could choose to collect additional information. So for example, the patients in the chest x-ray BNP arm could then have a lung ultrasound done if the physician felt it would be helpful and vice versa. So they wanted to make sure that the treating doctors eventually had all the information at their disposable, which I think makes sense in terms of sort of, you know, patient care and all of that. But the diagnosis was recorded just after either one of those options. Got it. Okay. So essentially, it's take patients who show up, met the inclusion criteria with dyspnea. They're categorized into what's thought to be heart failure or not heart failure based on the initial assessment. Both of those groups are then sent down the pathway of either getting a chest x-ray with BNP or getting a lung ultrasound. And if they're going down the lung ultrasound pathway, they subsequently automatically get a chest x-ray and BNP anyways. Is that correct? Yes, but after that second diagnosis, so that was almost after sort of the study data had been collected. But yeah, that's totally correct, Paxton. After the thing had been revised, so then they can compare the lung ultrasound to the chest x-ray BNP arm, or they can compare lung ultrasound and chest x-ray BNP to chest x-ray BNP alone. Yeah, that's totally correct, Paxton. Thanks for summarizing that. Perfect. So then specifically, what were they looking for? What was the primary outcome here? So their primary outcome was the accuracy of the diagnostic approach. So primarily they were looking at the clinical assessment plus lung ultrasound versus clinical assessment plus chest x-ray and BNP. So those were kind of the two groups that they were comparing. And their gold standard that they used in terms of diagnostic accuracy was a chart review after discharge that was done by two separate what they call expert clinicians who are apparently emergency physicians and or intensivists that were totally blinded to group assignments. And they tried to base their decisions on the 2012 ESC guidelines for heart failure. And I think if needed, because those two separate physicians reviewed the chart, if there was any disagreement, they did have a third person reviewing the charts who was a cardiologist. Perfect. Okay. So you set it up really well. So then tell us now about the results. What were they actually finding? All right. So I'll tell you first about the patients included in the trial. So they had just over 500 patients with a median age of 79. Of those, just over 40% ended up with a diagnosis of heart failure on chart review. So it was a pretty mixed bag of etiologies. The other common things were COPD, which was about 30%, and about 30% pneumonia. So all pretty bread and butter things that, as you said, we see every day. The other thing to say, it was a pretty sick cohort. So they had 8% hospital mortality, 25% of them got admitted to the ICU, 60% went to internal medicine or cardiology. And overall, they were quite complicated with sort of multiple comorbidities. Half of them were smokers, 40% had a diagnosis of COPD, 40% had a heart failure diagnosis prior to the study, 70% had hypertension, 35% were diabetic. So they were sort of multi-morbid patients that I think are very familiar to us as general internists, which I think is one of the strengths of this study. Yeah, can't say that I'm surprised. You know, people who get admitted to the hospital for heart failure tend to have a lot of comorbidities and Exactly. They tend, they tend to be pretty sick. Okay. And how about the results? All right. So in terms of their primary outcome, now the way they reported this was with a receiver operating curve, area under the curve. 
and essentially they showed that the integration of lung ultrasound added more to clinical assessment than the integration of chest x-ray and BNP with clinical assessment. So clinical assessment alone in the sort of lung ultrasound group had an area under the curve of 0.88. And when you added the lung ultrasound that, to that, it jumped up to 0.95. And that was statistically significant, that difference. In comparison, in the other group, the sort of chest x-ray BNP group, the initial area under the curve with just clinical assessment was 0.85, and it only improved to 0.87 with the addition of chest x-ray. So not a statistically significant difference. Okay, so that sounds better, but this is not a, a very easily interpreted result. So help us translate that a little bit, Katie. What does that mean in terms of actually affecting patient care? Yeah, so that's a great question. And they, they tried to look at that, I guess, maybe recognizing that this statistic is not something that is super intuitive to work with. So they calculated something that they called a net reclassification improvement. So basically, how many patients had their diagnosis correctly changed by either chest X-ray BNP or by lung ultrasound. And they reported this in a few different ways, but for simplicity's sake, I'll perhaps just pick one of them to highlight. So the addition of chest X-ray and BNP reduced diagnostic error by 2.4 cases out of 100 patients compared to clinical assessment alone. But lung ultrasound, in comparison, reduced that diagnostic error by 8 cases out of 100. So we have a difference there of 5.6 cases out of 100 patients who would have the correct diagnosis if they had a lung ultrasound instead of chest x-ray and BNP. Okay, so that is more meaningful to me. So what you're kind of describing is almost like a number needed to treat of about 20 or so, right? It is. And I, again, as I've said before, I'm not a statistician, so I don't think I can technically call it a number needed to treat, but that is sort of where my mind goes as well in terms of the magnitude of that difference. Okay. Any important secondary outcomes you wanted to highlight? Yeah. So I'll mention briefly that they analyzed a lot of subgroups. They looked at subgroups of patients who had previous diagnoses of heart failure, previous diagnoses of COPD. They looked at heart failure with reduced ejection fraction versus preserved ejection fraction. Overall, I will say with all the subgroups, there was a trend to lung ultrasound being better, but very few of them reached statistical significance just because of small numbers. And then the other secondary outcome to mention is they did look at something they called a time to integrated diagnosis. So the time from the first recorded diagnosis to the second diagnosis. And as you might expect, the lung ultrasound approach was much quicker. That was a five minute interval from the first to the second recorded diagnoses, whereas chest X-ray and BNP took an average of 105 minutes. And obviously, as they point out in their discussion, that's not 105 minutes where the physician is sitting around doing nothing, waiting for labs to come back. But I still think that's significant in that lung ultrasound provides real-time information and you can act on those results much more quickly. Yeah, I think two hours in the emerge is no small thing. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you, you, you've described, we've gone through the trial, you described it to us, I think, in pretty good detail. We know that patients who are being assessed in the emerge with ultrasound have a quicker diagnosis and a more accurate diagnosis than the use of chest x-ray and BMP. Let's take a step back kind of and contextualize this. Is there anything else that you want to point out about this trial? Or do you have any comments on how this fits into what we know already? Yeah, and I mean, I think overall, this is sort of in keeping with the existing literature that has demonstrated sort of very good test characteristics for lung ultrasound for the diagnosis of heart failure. 
One of the things that's always a problem with ultrasound trial is sort of what endpoint to pick and what comparators to pick. Because ultrasound is in this sort of odd category of being somewhat a diagnostic test, somewhat an extension of sort of a clinical exam. And people often struggle with how to best study this in order to prove its utility. So I quite liked in this trial, and this is the first one to do this, that they compared it to what you can pretty reasonably consider is the gold standard right now for diagnostic tests for heart failure in chest x-ray and BNP. And the other thing I liked is their endpoint. And I know we said that it's not a perfect endpoint, but one flaw that the previous sort of ultrasound trials have suffered from is trying to prove things like mortality benefit with the addition of ultrasound. And if you've read any papers, you know that proving a mortality benefit in general in medicine, unless you have thousands and thousands of patients in a giant cardiology sized trial is pretty challenging. And so I think that this is a pretty reasonable endpoint. It is patient oriented. So I think that the study organizers should be sort of commended for picking this. It's not perfect, certainly, but I think it really builds on the existing literature and is another sort of piece of evidence that's very strongly in favor of this as being one of the best tests, if not the best test we have for heart failure. So just to round things out, are there any other limitations that you wanted to highlight with this particular trial? Um, I mean, there's a few sort of very small things to point out. It was mostly a single center study and that one center enrolled the majority of patients. They were non-consecutive patients. We already talked about this sort of potentially false dichotomy. I think that a couple sort of larger things. One thing is, so they looked at lung ultrasound for the diagnosis of heart failure, which is very reasonable. And as I said, sort of a skill that's quite easy to become proficient at. For those of us who use ultrasound on a daily basis, if I'm evaluating someone with dyspnea or who I think might have heart failure, I'm also going to have a look at their heart and their IVC with the ultrasound. And the authors do point out that they chose not to include those two examinations in their protocol, but that realistically that is what often happens in the real world. And we've seen in some other areas, for example, looking at ultrasound for the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, we've started to see studies that look at more of a multi-organ protocol where the operators are looking at the heart, the lungs, you know, uh, the legs for DVT in that case. And so I would wonder if we might see things in future that combine cardiac ultrasound with lung ultrasound uh, for the diagnosis of heart failure. And we've seen some of that to date in sort of smaller papers, but that's certainly one thing to point out here. Okay. All right. So then let's just summarize here. Bottom line of this paper is what? So the bottom line of this paper is that ultrasound is better than chest x-ray and BNP for the diagnosis of heart failure. And if you look at the net reclassification index, as we said, an additional sort of five and a half patients out of 100 would have the correct diagnosis if lung ultrasound was used instead of chest x-ray and BNP in addition to a clinical workup. So Katie, I think I know the answer here, but does this change your clinical practice? <laughs> I'm sure you guessed the answer. So this does not change my practice as I'm already an ultrasound disciple and I cart my machine around with me everywhere. I hope that for some people listening to the podcast who don't regularly use ultrasound, this might encourage them to go ahead and kind of get training in this modality. I think it does sort of bring up the question as to whether I will start to just entirely forego doing a chest x-ray and a BNP on my patients with heart failure. And I think the honest answer is probably not. And if only because we tend to work in sort of a shared care model where there are often other physicians taking over care from me. And I think that for some of them, maybe who wouldn't have as much fluency with ultrasound or, you know, because they would want those other diagnostic tests, I think I will probably still order them for now. But maybe that'll change in future. Yeah. And speaking as one of your colleagues, you know, I think that from my perspective, 
knowing that heart failure is obviously one of several presentations that I would still want to see a chest x-ray to rule out other things like a pneumonia, although maybe that's just me clinging to my old technology. In our next podcast, I'll teach you about how lung ultrasound is also better than chest x-ray for pneumonia. So... <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for bringing this paper. This is interesting to me and I learned a lot. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Paxton. All right. Before we wrap it up, it's time to finally move on to the good stuff segment. So Paxton, tell me what you've been reading about this week. Excellent. Okay. So I was reading a super interesting article uh, this week, Katie, that was talking about a recent publication out of JAMA that was looking at the pooling of doctors' diagnoses and how that may improve diagnostic accuracy. So there was a very interesting study that came out of Harvard that actually looked at how the number of physicians weighing in on a particular case helped improve the accuracy of the diagnosis. And in fact, not surprisingly, the more physicians you had looking at a patient, the more refined their diagnostic ability became, such that using this kind of collective intelligence, they actually found that a group of, of generalists together could even outperform specialists in solving cases that were matched to that specialist's specialty. So this was really interesting to me, not only because of the questions it raises kind of in the long term about the way we practice medicine, where, you know, is there certain a lot of teamwork, but especially when it comes to specialists and subspecialists, they're sort of lone wolves in a lot of places. But it got me thinking a lot about teaching hospitals and the areas that you and I work. And I really value that part of working at an academic center in a teaching hospital. I think as a patient, sometimes it can be a little jarring to see so many different faces, trainees from all these different levels and not really having a grasp over who your doctor is. But I think that this highlights one of the probably not surprising benefits of having that kind of team model of care is you have the opportunity to sit around and really talk about cases with a large group of really smart people. And I think it does improve our diagnostic ability. I think it does uh, refine our treatment um, in academic centers. And it was nice to see that kind of validated in a study like this one. That's super interesting. Thank you for bringing this forward, Paxton, because I totally agree that sort of sitting around in a room and discussing a case with my colleagues is probably my favorite thing about academic medicine. So it's really great to see that, yeah, that has been studied and shown to be as we would sort of intuit, good for the patient. So that's really interesting. Thanks. So tell me, Katie, then what have you been reading about? Well, so I think unwittingly, I've kind of chosen an article that's somewhat in opposition to yours, but maybe just looking at the other side of that coin of having a large group of people caring for one patient. So the article that I chose is called The Not My Problem Problem. So this article sort of describes a patient admitted under a subspecialty service cared for by multiple different providers and kind of describes some of the frustrations and maybe the downsides of having so many physicians involved in your care, where the buck is constantly being passed from one person to the next in a manner that can be frustrating to the patients and also potentially detrimental to their care. So the article kind of highlights the need to understand some of the social science and culture of medicine so that we can do better sort of working as a team and getting some of those positive effects like you've talked about. And it sort of addresses the importance of, you know, being the one to step up and sometimes do the not glamorous tasks. So doing the scut work, filling out the paperwork, going down to talk to radiology, all those kinds of things that often sort of get 
left in the ether if there's no one single person stepping up to take care of the patient. And in the story, the physician who eventually kind of steps up says that they did so because, quote, it's just the right thing to do. And I thought that was a really nice sort of adage to live by. In medicine, when we're often busy and overworked, we usually know what's in the patient's best interest. And often it's not necessarily what's most convenient for us and it will be extra work. But I think that's a pretty good guiding principle to keep in mind when we're working, especially in these large group scenarios. Huh. I couldn't agree more with that. And that's interesting that you know, you've highlighted some of the potential drawbacks for that sort of larger team model. So we'll point out to our listeners that in no way did we coordinate this, but kind of some food for thought. Yeah, great minds think alike, clearly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paxson, for joining me today. It was totally a pleasure to record with you, and I hope that we'll do it again soon. Absolutely, Katie. Always a pleasure. And take care. Thanks. The Browns Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>